I've been noticing lately the Amazon delivery trucks on the road, and I've been noticing that they have a little slogan on the side of the uh, truck. Um, I, I can't recall the exact words, but it goes something like this. The contents inside will cause happiness. You know, that's interesting because that, that, uh, did you get pulled into any advertisement you saw on the web or on TV this week? Did something really pique your interest? But let me tell you what's going on. Every one of those advertisements is, is getting a message across to you in a very subtle way, a specific version of what it means to be a human being and what it takes for a human being to thrive. That is what advertisement is. It's, it's conveying to you a specific version of what it means to be a human being and what it takes for a human being to thrive. Now, that is an important question. And many of the things that we do in our lives is actually whether we recognize it or not is an answer to that important question. What is a human being and how do I thrive? The desires that we have, the plans that we make is really an answer to that all-important question. And it is for that which, that question, and it is concerning that question that Paul is on trial before us today. What is a human being? And what is a human thriving? Now I think at this point, it's helpful for us to, to remember the context and to remember what has happened up to this point. You remember that Paul spent many years traveling Asia Minor and Greece proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, both to the Jews and to the Greeks. But by and large, the Jewish people rejected him, whereas many Greeks, many Gentiles, received the gospel gladly. And after many years, Paul returned to Jerusalem. And there were many Jews in Jerusalem who held a grudge against Paul. And they accused Paul of being a traitor to their nation for turning his back on the God of their fathers to the law and to the temple. And so there were many Jews who held a very powerful and strong grudge against Paul. And some Jews, when they saw Paul in Jerusalem, accused Paul of bringing Gentiles into the temple and thereby defiling the temple. And it resulted in a city-wide riot as an angry mob uh, took hold of Paul and they began to beat him. And they would have surely killed him if not for the fact that the Roman battalion rushed in to stop the riot. Now Paul then asked and received permission from the Roman tribune to defend himself to the Jews and he began his defense by uh, telling them of his strict upbringing as an Orthodox Jew, how he once burned with the zeal for the law that resulted in his persecution of Christians. But he also told them how, as he was on his way to imprison Christians, he met the risen Lord Jesus and he was converted to the Lord. And the mob, they listened to him quietly all the way up to the point where Paul said in chapter 22, verse 21, how Jesus said to Paul, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. You see, these Jewish people, they had built up their whole identity on being Jewish. 
their whole uh, reason for existence, their whole pride, their boasting was that we are not like these unclean Gentiles. And they could not fathom or accept or tolerate the idea that God's grace is also for the Gentiles. And, and when they heard Paul say that Jesus, is, Jesus sent me to the Gentiles, they exploded with rage. And the Roman tribune ordered Paul to be examined by flogging to find out why they were sh- uh, shouting against them that he must die. Uh, shoot first, ask questions later. That's the approach. And this flogging was a vicious torture uh, designed to extract confession. Uh, their whips were divided at the end into many dif- uh, different ends, and, and pieces of rock, metal, or, sh- or shards would be tied to the end. And very few people survived the flogging. And that's what the Roman Tribune was about to do. But Paul's life was spared at the very last minute when Paul told them that he is a Roman citizen because it, is a, it was against the law to, to, to bind or punish Roman citizen without a trial. But in the Tribune's mind, there is a question. Why is Paul such a polarizing figure? What is it about this man that causes such an uproar? And that brings us to the first observation this morning. Paul faces scrutiny. And you see here the Tribune ordered Paul to face the Jewish council. The Sanhedrin is the name for the Jewish council. And as you know, Israel at this time, uh, like much of the world at that time, was under the rule of the Roman Empire. And one of the reasons the Roman Empire was so successful was that they allowed each locality, each region to govern themselves on uh, minor local affairs. And so the Jewish people had received permission from the empire to govern their own affairs. And the Sanhedrin, the Council of the Jews, were vested with the authority to, to rule over the Jewish people. And the Sanhedrin was largely made up with two groups of people. First, there were the Sadducees, and then there were the Pharisees. The Sadducees, they derived their name from the Old Testament high priest Zadok. And they were the Jewish aristocrats. Uh, They were born into wealth and privilege. And they were members of important Jewish families. And these people, the Sadducees, uh, were by and large very comfortable with the Romans because they actually worked it out so that they benefited handsomely under the political structure of the Roman Empire. So they were very much uh, in line with the Rome, and they were very friendly toward the Romans, but not the Pharisees. The Pharisees tend to be, by and large, uh, not from wealthy, influential families, but they were, uh, they were considered to be uh, people who are serious scholars of scriptures, and they tended to be very conservative. They tended to be very uh, orthodox, and they tended to be very patriotic. 
And so they were greatly revered by the Jewish people, and they had tremendous sway and influence over the Jewish people. That is to say, these two groups that made the Jewish Sanhedrin, the uh, Sadducees on the one hand and the Pharisees on the other hand, they couldn't be more different. Politically, socially, economically, theologically, uh, they were at odds. They did not get along. But they could put up a united front if there was an important issue, just as they put up a united front when they condemned and executed Jesus. See, they were worlds apart in every other conceivable uh, topics. But when it came to Jesus, they were united. And they condemned him and they executed him. And it is before this Sanhedrin, now Paul stands to be scrutinized, to be, to be examined. And you see here how Paul's meeting with Sanhedrin quickly turns very violent. In verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, recognize that Paul had been accused of being a traitor to the Jewish nation, to the God of their fathers. So this is part and a continuation of Paul's defense. You remember in the last passage we read how Paul defended himself saying that I am serving the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob sent Jesus. And so nothing that I do is against or is in rebellion against the God of fathers. But in fact, it is honoring the God of our fathers. And this is Paul's defense that he, he has lived his life up until this day with all good conscience. But in the next verse, verse 2, we see that the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, isn't it fascinating? These people, they were trying, they were examining, they were interrogating Paul on the notion that Paul was a lawbreaker and they were upholding the law. But in everything that they do is a violation of the law. They strike an innocent man and later on they form a conspiracy to murder. You see? And we can see clearly just who was the lawbreaker. And what we see clear is, clearly is that Ananias is typical and he, he is representative of the Jewish people's unbelief. Ananias is not interested in what Paul has to say. Uh, he's already made up his mind about Paul's guilt. And so Luke characterizes the Jewish unbelief not so much as the failure of reason, but really as the corrupt heart suppressing the truth. In that light, Luke's portrayal of the Roman authorities is actually very different. Because when the tribune learns of the Jewish conspiracy against Paul, he sends him to Felix the governor under heavy protection. And in the, in the prisoner transfer letter, he writes in verse 29, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. 
Now remember that Paul's present ordeals that we are reading here, it will soon lead to Paul making an appeal to Caesar. And this uh, book of Acts actually ends in chapter 28 with Paul in Rome awaiting his uh, meeting with Caesar. And so seen in that light, uh, book of Acts reads, doesn't it? It reads like defense exhibit number one in that every time the Roman authorities examine Paul, they declare him innocent. And that's part of Luke's message as Paul heads to Rome to be tried before Caesar. Every Roman authorities declare him innocent. And that's part of Luke's message here. Even as the Jewish people were not at all interested in learning the truth, the Romans who actually examined them found him to be innocent. And that also brings us to the second point, which is the hope of resurrection. Now, in verse 6, we read that, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Many scholars are divided about this passage. They wonder what's going on. Some people, some scholars think that Paul is being quite clever and almost being manipulative. You know, this is the clever strategy of divide and conquer. It's, it's his way of getting out of a jam. He notes that these two parties are theologically at odds. One party believes in resurrection, the Pharisees, the Sadducees do not. So he frames the issue on that one point of theology that they cannot agree on to escape his interrogation. That's how some people take this passage. Um, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Because you, if you look at verse 11, you read that the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Jesus does not characterize Paul's words as manipulative or irresponsible or faithless, but Jesus characterizes Paul's conduct and words as the act of a faithful witness bearer. And Paul was being faithful and he acted with integrity and he was absolutely right when he framed the question along the line of the hope of resurrection. Now we have seen this throughout the book of Acts. Wherever we see the apostles proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, wherever we read Paul proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no gospel presentation without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we have seen all along, haven't we, that at the heart of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus and this goes directly 
to the question, what is a human being and what is human thriving? Because resurrection makes concrete the hope that we see from the very first pages of the Bible. Now that's important because if we are asking the question, what is a human being and what is human thriving? Now every culture, every society will answer the question differently. But if we really want to answer the question right, we need to go back to how God created man, male and female, and what it meant then uh, for Adam and Eve to be created human being, and what it meant for them to thrive. And you remember how God created man, male and female, in his image, placed them in Eden and blessed them. And God gave them a command in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's always interesting to me when people uh, tell this story, they usually leave out the first part where God says to them, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. They usually leave out that part, and the only part that they mention is when God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's like the little children who complain to their parents, you never let me do anything. They forget everything that parents have done for them, but the only thing that they remember is what they don't like. So think about this and remember this. God created Adam and Eve and put them in paradise and he gives them everything to eat. And by the way, what kinds of things did he give them to eat? The things, when he created them in chapter one, he said, God. And he gives them to Adam and Eve and say, and he says, eat, it's all yours. But this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from it. And by your obedience, you will show me that you love me more than my gifts. And by the way, since God gave them every good thing to enjoy, it's not as if obeying God and not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is going to cost them anything. They're not going to go hungry. I mean, imagine you were invited to a dinner at your friend's house and your friend shows a table loaded with delicacies, wonderful feasts, and then says, well, by the way, this is not for you. It is for me. You, I have this leftover from yesterday. This is for you. Now, then you would have cause to complain, wouldn't you? But that's not what God is doing. God gives them a paradise full of good things. Everything is yours. But this one tree, don't eat from it. You're not going to go hungry if you don't eat from it. You have everything. You have the rest of the garden, but... Listen, obey, and show me that you love me more than you love the gifts. And what's going on there? It's this. That paradise was a perfect place, wasn't it? But it turns out that even in that paradise, before sin entered into picture, Adam and Eve had a life that could come to an end. 
And that's what the warning is about, isn't it? On the day you eat of it, you will die. Adam and Eve, they were given a life, glorious, blessed, wonderful, but a life that could come to an end. And they had fellowship with God that could be interrupted. And exactly, that is exactly how it turned out. But from the very beginning, God gave them a promise of a glorious, glorious and exalted life that through obedience, by loving God more than his gifts, man would be transformed to experience glorified life so that man, Adam and Eve, would receive a life that cannot end, a fellowship with God that cannot break. That is why in Genesis 2.9 you read, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, they're side by side. God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right next to it is the tree of life. God instructing them what his promise is, what is at stake. The tree of life, it was a sacrament. And the eating of the fruit would confer upon Adam and Eve blessings of eternal life and fellowship. Now let me tell you, that is what you and I were created to be. That is human thriving. You know, isn't it interesting today, people uh, say that we are so much like our, the, the, the animals in this world, you know. We are one of many creatures in this world. But in this whole universe, the being that is closest to us is God, because we are created in His image. We were created to be exalted and honored. And so for human beings to thrive is to be the kinds of people that God has created us to be. But you know what happened, don't you? That hope was quickly lost through sin. And man, Adam and Eve, they were exiled from the presence of God. And death and decay became their and our bitter reality. But God, God raised Jesus from the dead with an indestructible life. And every believer receives through Jesus life that cannot end. And every believer receives through Jesus the fellowship with God that cannot be broken. Do you see the hope that was written in the very first pages of the Bible, that hope that was lost, is restored to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead, and we, with him, rise from the dead. Jesus has indestructible life. We have indestructible life in Jesus. And because of Jesus, our fellowship with God will never be broken or interrupted. And that is why Paul is a prisoner. That is why Paul is on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. I wonder how do you answer the question, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean for me to thrive? 
Well, let me ask you this way. What made you really upset this week? What made you say to yourself, I'm so unhappy. If I only had this, I would then be happy. If only this happened, I would then finally be happy. That's how we answer the question, what it means to be a human being and what it means to thrive. But consider that you were created by God in his image to know him eternally, to have fellowship with him. That's what you were created to be. And unless you have that, you are not actually a truly, a fully, a human person. And unless you are restored to God in Jesus Christ by faith in his death and resurrection, you are never going to thrive as a human being. And that brings us to the third and the last point, the comfort of Christ. Paul was not at all sure whether he would survive the mob violence. Just the day before his trial, before the Sanhedrin, he was beaten by the mob who were intent on killing him. And so why do you suppose that on the day of his trial, Paul does not recognize that Ananias was the high priest? And when Ananias orders uh, Paul to be struck, Paul calls him, you whitewashed wall. Why does he do that? Why does he say that? Some scholars think that it's because Paul had been away from Jerusalem for many years and he didn't recognize who the high priest was. Possible. Uh, Some scholars say that the New Testament sometimes gives hints that Paul had some uh, serious health issues and possibly it had something to do with his eyes and Paul had poor uh, vision that he could not recognize who that person was. And I can relate. I have a really poor eyesight and when I take my glasses off, all I see are blurs of colors. And I can certainly relate with that scenario. But I think what's happening is this. The day before the trial, he was beaten by the mob. And I'm thinking at least a few blows landed on his head. And my guess is Paul is standing there with his eyes swollen shut. And he can barely see through his eyes. And he hears that what the only thing that he sees is a white blur through his swollen shut eyes. Paul was ready to suffer for the sake of Christ. But there's no illusion about how much he had to pay. What a painful experience that was for him. And you know, Paul had been thinking, you know, I'm not going to live through this. I'm not going to survive. That's why Jesus appears to him and says, take courage, take courage. Now, why would Jesus say that to Paul unless Paul was afraid? unless he was deeply discouraged. But Jesus comes to him and he says, take courage. I am with you. They struck you. They struck me too. You are in pain. I know it well. 
You are suffering. I suffered. You lost heart. I lost heart. You know, that's Jesus coming to Paul in his darkness, in his pain, and comforting Paul, saying, I am with you. You know, it says, the Heidelberg Catechism would later write it. It's that precious truth that Jesus watches over him in such a way that not a hair can fall from his head without the will of his Father in heaven. And what Jesus assures Paul is this, that Paul, Paul who entrusted his life to Jesus, and Jesus will not ever forsake him. Though the whole world turn against Paul, nothing will separate Paul from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. Our ability to endure pain and fear depend entirely on the strength of our hope. Now, I do not mean that it depends on how much feeling we can muster up or work up in ourselves to convince ourselves that everything's going to work out okay. That's not what I mean. Rather, our ability to endure fear and pain depend entirely on the strength of our hope in that have you placed your hope in something that that can withstand every attack upon it is the object of your hope big enough and powerful enough to reach into your present darkness to sustain you And the only hope that can do that for you is the hope of Jesus' resurrection. The hope that you are united to him who conquered. That you will also rise with him. It's the hope of his resurrection. It was for that hope that Paul was on trial. He suffered. And it is that hope that sustained Paul. I'm so glad that time to time I read in the scriptures that these great heroes of faith, so worn out, so exhausted, so hopeless, so broken, It makes it so real for me. I don't know if I can ever relate to a person who never has a moment of weakness. But Paul was broken. He had lost hope. But Jesus sustained him. I wonder, maybe you too are experiencing discouragement. Maybe you too are in darkness. Maybe you too are feeling lonely and forsaken. And let me remind you of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. He suffered. He died. He rose. 
he conquered. You will conquer with him. You will rise with him. In Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for instructing us. We thank you that you are a God full of compassion and kindness when we are weak, when we lose hope, and when we suffer. And I pray, Lord, for your dear saints in this room, for everyone that is discouraged and weary, everyone who has lost hope, that they would find encouragement and hope in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And may that glorious hope reach into their darkness and give them strength today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.